pray again. Lord, it is our prayer in light of the wonders of your revelation and seen in all of your handiwork and nature, but even more clearly and more powerfully communicated to us through your word. It is our response, Lord, that uh, may the meditation of our hearts, may the words of our mouth be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock, you are our redeemer. Help us now, we pray, as we meditate upon your word, that your spirit may apply it to us as need be and point us to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Can you think of anything more entertaining than a dog chasing its own tail? What a comical sight. Round and round and round he goes. Uh, obviously, it's not as funny when you have a dog that's not chasing its tail, but a, a dog that's aggressively attacking another dog. There's no enjoyment in watching two uncontrolled dogs biting each other. But when dogs are playfully sort of uh, chasing each other, they're wrestling each other, certainly there's a much enjoyable entertainment there. But when a dog isn't determined to inflict harm on another dog, it must be stopped. There's, clearly they've stepped over the line. And certainly Michael Vick uh, learned that the, the uh, painful way. I would suggest to you that there's another difficult scenario to watch. <clears throat> it's not easy to watch at all. And that's when two people are attacking each other. And I'm not thinking now of people who are fist fighting. I'm not thinking of people who are pulling and scratching and all that that's involved. I'm talking about two people who are seething with anger. <clears throat> and that anger is being expressed... <clears throat> with insults, with words that are belittling, words that impugn the other person. And they're attacking each other in such a way that there is such a no regard any longer for the feelings or how these words are going to impact the other person. Each one is verbally jabbing the other one with accusations about wrongdoing, and recounting past wrongs along with all sorts of disparaging comments about the other, personals, the other person's personal worth. What an ugly sight. Clearly something enough to make you cry. And maybe you've been involved in something like that where you have heard such words spoken to you. But I would suggest to you there is a scenario that is even more sad and even more tragic, more disturbing, is when two members of the body of Christ act this way toward each other. Some people early on in life, they learn that the way to handle their disagreements is to somehow, quote, settle the score. And so they verbally attack when they feel attacked by their opponent. And their game plan uh, clearly is to let the other person have a piece of their mind. The problem with this kind of scenario when it unfolds is that it leaves a swath of broken relationships in its wake. And left unchecked, it certainly is a kind of dynamic that will wreak havoc upon the church. When people of God are attacking each other, it won't be long before the local church will disintegrate. Jesus said so many words to that effect. 
He said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now here I am today having to acknowledge, if it, as it were, dirty laundry that we all know exists, that there is conflict that does arise within the family of God. We all know that. The question is, what transformative insights does the gospel provide to us to address this kind of potential and this kind of real problem, this kind of real threat to the health and vitality in the local body of Christ? So I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to look at just a few verses here. Beginning here, we'll go to other verses uh, later on in the second half of the sermon. I want us to look at two reciprocal principles, that is the one another commands on how to love one another. And these commands contain a, a tremendous amount of wisdom, an abundance of wisdom on the proper ways to express biblical love among Christians who disagree. Something that we all, I think, could, be, could benefit from. The first one is something that we are to avoid or to stop doing. And the second one is a positive reciprocal command that we are to pursue and keep on pursuing. And so let's start with Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Galatians 5, 13, page 1388 in your pew Bible. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. Now I want to begin with this particular verse, verse 15. Uh, this is obviously something that's not uh, the most pleasant topic, topic to deal with, but clearly it is in Scripture because it does speak to us about the, fa the fact that this is a problem. And so Paul is clearly saying we need to put this off. He says, no more mutual destruction. The terminology he uses here in chapter 5, or verse 15 of Galatians is quite graphic. But I think it's fair to say that I'm not alone in joining with other commentators who have read Paul's admonition and we've drawn the conclusion that we don't think that there was a problem with literal cannibalism going on among members of the local church. We don't literally believe that they were literally biting each other um, and devouring each other in that sense. Although, let me just back up and say this. It, is commonly, it was commonly held by many Romans who were not familiar with the actual life within a local church, that they heard bits and pieces about the followers of Jesus, that many Romans concluded that it was commonly practiced among these church meetings that there was cannibalism because they heard the statement say, take, eat, this is my body. So they would take that and they extrapolated this obviously erroneous understanding. But I think a better interpretation of this text, where Paul is admonishing them to not bite and devour one another, is to assume, of course, he's using metaphorical language. Apparently, there were some Galatian church members who were behaving more like beasts than they were like believers. And what started out probably as a small skirmish 
perhaps with some sort of disagreement among two fellow members of the church and body, members of the body of Christ, it expanded to become a full-blown personal battle. And the hostility became so elevated by these members that they stopped focusing at that point on the problem, whatever that may have been, and they've now descended down to this ugly level of attacking each other. And rather than focusing their energy and all their efforts on somehow resolving the issue, the issue that they couldn't see eye to eye on, they have now crossed the line. And it's sort of you read between the lines here and you sort of get the idea that their dealing with each other has involved some measure perhaps of slandering each other or some sort of attacking the other person's character, attacking the other person's worth, attacking the other person's motives or even their beliefs. So both sides somehow in this particular skirmish and I would say even battle, they've lost sight. They've lost sight of Christ. They've lost sight of the gospel. And the primary goal that they seem to be pursuing is that they finally get their statement in to somehow put the other person into their place and to prove themselves to be right. Now, lest we think that we're beyond all this, let me just back up and say, is it not possible and is it not probable that many of us here have had such conversations in our lives? James warns us that the tongue is indeed a real problem with evil that can easily get into all sorts of murderous kind of comments that come out of our hearts with our words. And I would dare say it's all too common among married couples or people that we've come into some significant deep exchange with someone that we know quite well. You disagree about some minor issue, it starts off. But before long, you end up assuming a defensive position. And the focus shifts now from the initial issue, whatever this small little matter was you were discussing, and now the the, the, uh, it zeroes in the conversation, the topic, the battle now is aimed at each other. And so your spouse is the one who is now the focus of your venomous words. And before you know it, no longer again the, attack is, uh, the problem is being attacked. Now it is your spouse that you are attacking. And years ago, in my younger years, in my sort of... Um, more simple way of looking at things. I used to give advice to couples for premarital counseling. I would su suggest to them that one of the best things you can do in dealing with inevitable times of conflict is to come up with your own ground rules. Come up with certain things that you're gonna follow as you agree to when it comes to fighting and agree that you're not going to pick bad times in order to have these uh, awful discussions. You know, if it's late at night, you're tired, all those things. There's some help to that, of course, but I, I realize such advice is just merely putting a Band-Aid or trying to help people say, put bug spray on some problem that's much deeper. And so we need to go below the surface. We need to look not merely at techniques and strategies. We have to look at what's the hard issues that are really going on when this kind of dynamic is taking place. And again, biblically speaking, maybe you ought to turn to James 4 and notice how James reveals such an interesting insight here regarding how it could be that two people would 
end up descending down to the level where they're biting and devouring each other with their words. James 4, verses 1 and 2, page 1436 in your pew Bible. A very powerful question James asks, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts or fightings among you? It's a good question. What is the source of that? What's the real underlying issue going on here? Why is it that things have gotten this bad? That there's this kind of words that are being spoken to another person? Then he raised another question. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You desire, I like that word better than the word lust, you desire and you do not have, so you commit murder with your words. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What he's saying here is what we know Jesus to have also concurred, and that is that the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. What's really going on when people are speaking on this level of intensity of using words that are attacking the other person, then clearly that's coming out of their heart, and their heart therefore has become consumed with something that is so valued that they'll do uh, take the measure of saying things that are designed to destroy this person over here in order to get what they really want. And again, if we think ourselves as being beyond this, I would just back up and say, read Matthew 5 sometime where Jesus is talking about, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, and then Jesus goes on to expand where you say, well, that, I'm free on that one. I don't have to worry about that. I don't think I've ever you know, deliberately poisoned someone or deliberately uh, taken their life out of anger. But he goes on to then expand the sense, he says, but have you had anger in your heart to the extent to which you've hated someone enough that you have spoken to them in ways in which those words are designed to demean them and to suggest that they are a person of no value. For example, he says, uh, he says, everyone who is angry with his brother and says to his brother, Raka will be guilty before the Sanhedrin. Raka means what? You're an empty head. You're a person who is good for nothing. And that's what we're talking about here. This is when we use our words to attack a person rather than the problem. Well, the larger question behind this, again, needs to be asked, what is at the heart of such kind of words and such kind of verbal fighting? What is ruling the heart of someone who is biting and devouring their own brother and sister in Christ? Well, I would suggest that we give some thought to the fact that if we dig deep down enough, we will find, if this is the fruit we're seeing on the outside, we'll find a taproot, which of course is built with pride in there somewhere. But along with the pride is a form of idolatry. There's an idol there somewhere. There's something that you are craving there is something that you have gone from not just desiring, which would be, oh, yes, I want this with an open hand. But as Paul Tripp says, it has become slowly over a period of time something that you demand. I am demanding that I must have this. And it's a clenched fist now at this point. Something I've desired initially is now something I'm trying to hang on to and, and grab that it must have it. And then he says, if I don't get it, I will determine it's not just a desire. It's something I need. I must have it. I can't live without it. And therefore, 
don't get in my way or I'll be extremely angry with you. So what is it that could be at the the root of some heart that has gripped us in this way, that a fellow believer we've treated in this way? Well, it's an idolatrous longing and indeed maybe a desire that's so strong it's a super desire. It's something that's gotten way out of whack. It may be something that normally is a good thing to have, but we are craving it. It's become the ultimate. It's become something far too more important than it initially should be. It's an all-controlling drive and desire that's out of whack. It could be the, the desire for control, the desire for revenge, the desire for, uh, of, of respect. I must have this respectful treatment from you. It could be a reaction out of fear. I must have situations under control, and therefore I'm reacting out of the fear, fact that I've lost control or a, a desire for freedom or some other self-focused goal is what we are craving more than we crave God at that moment. And here in this situation in the Galatian churches, I think the issue, if you look behind the scenes, was the issue of legalism. There was one group within the church that was insisting that the other group was not spiritual. And they were saying that, listen, you people are not pleasing to God. You're not where you need to be, spiritually speaking, because you are not doing all these religious ceremonies and keeping all of the endless list of, of uh, rituals from the Old uh, Covenant. And the group who held these legalistic practices were attacking the other group who were gospel lovers, people who were free in Christ and not trying to keep a long list of the rules. And perhaps what they got down to is the insinuation that one group was not Christians and the other group was. We're the insiders and you're the outsiders. You people have lost it, man. You're way out of line here. Now, of course, they are talking about very serious doctrinal matters here, and I am suggesting there are times we need to talk about those issues. But clearly what's going on here is that they're focusing on rather than their mutual identity in Christ. Rather than focusing on the gospel hope they both share in common, that we both have a wonderful Savior that we rely on, that they are attempting to put the members of this other group in a lower position, striving to elevate themselves. And so their idolatrous desires have produced an outward fruit of works that were aimed at destroying the other people, the other group. Destroying their reputation, destroying their confidence, even destroying perhaps their plans and their simple desires to follow Christ. Such actions, of course, are the fruit of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example. This is sort of a bit of a stretch maybe, but I just have been meditating on this. Uh, turn with me to 2 Samuel for an example, chapter 16 of someone who used words in a way that were quite destructive. There's a lot of biting and devouring going on here. I'm going back to a time frame in which David has been king for a while. His predecessor, King Saul, is dead. Many members of King's, King's, uh, King Saul's family are now also dead. Uh, David's kingdom has at one time was in a grand position of power and great unity and political victory, but now there has slowly declined over a long period of time. There's lots of infighting. There are members of David's own family who are seeking to usurp his position of being the king, and so there's just a lot of turmoil going on. And there's a lot of people who are angry with David, and one of those guys was Shammai. 
Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right and at his left. And thus Shammai said when he, was, when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. This is the kind of conversation I'm talking about. He may have had a disagreement. He may have said, David, I don't think you've done right here. I think you've really made some serious errors. His words are out to destroy this guy. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into your hand of your own son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then we just go down a little bit, a few more verses there to verse 13. So David and his men went on that day, went on their way, and Shammai went along on the hillside parallel with them. With him, as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. In other words, it kept going on and on. David's answer was really, he didn't really try to respond in a way that took this guy on. He didn't elevate it further. He didn't heave back a bunch of other words to try to destroy him. He, he basically said, well, maybe that what you're saying is right. What a vastly different response than what David made to Nabal who was, again, another part of 1 Samuel where you realize he was ready to call off and just kill this guy, and he got uh, good counsel and said, listen, calm yourself and don't overreact. Now, what I just say here, I don't want you to hear me wrongly here. I want to say we're not to just ignore this kind of speaking. You and I are not to just allow personal attacks, and I would suggest we have an even bigger problem nowadays when people do this bullying on the internet with their cyber bullying, using the internet as a way of communicating messages to another person, just completely just trying to destroy them as a person and their own value as a person. We need to, of course, not let it go on unchallenged, particularly if the person is a believer saying these things. So I would suggest to you Matthew 18 is quite helpful in speaking to the person directly. If that doesn't resolve in sort of beginning the issue, have the problem somewhat resolved, then bring another person with you, two or three people who are witnesses to make sure that what is being said, to verify what's being done, to try to see if this thing can be resolved. But we must begin to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Would you speak to Jesus the way that Shammai spoke? or the way that perhaps you know your, you yourself have used your words at times when you attacked another person and their dignity and their value as a person, would you speak that way to Jesus himself? Would you speak to another person and verbally attack them as a brother and sister in Christ if you knew that Jesus was in the room and you were doing it? Well, would you bite and devour your spouse if you knew that Jesus Christ was living within that other person? And in you as well. The gospel that makes peace between us as former enemies of God is the same gospel that has the power to transform us. The gospel that declares that we have died to our old way of living. 
so that because of our union with Christ, because we are no longer cut off from Christ, now I have been joined to Christ and His death and His resurrection. Therefore, we do not have to obey the sinful desires any longer that we used to obey. We can now say no. We can now move in another direction when those situations arise. We don't have to find ourselves reacting in the ways we used to. Indeed, because the gospel assures me and you that we, those who are in Christ are new creations, that whatever that person may have said about me, that is not true just because they've said it, because God has said something different to me in the gospel. He claims me as his own dear child. And therefore, rather than using my mouth as a weapon to express some murderous anger and inner hatred, I therefore can look to God and pray to Him and say, Lord, help me know how to respond in this situation. So that if my failings, which I can certainly agree to, we don't have to defend ourselves of being perfect, but I wonder if we've come to the point this morning where it might be helpful for us to give some time to say to ourselves, if we have spoken such words to people in our life, our spouse, our children, our relatives, our parents, our siblings, our, our fellow students, whether it's been in person or whether using social media, could it be that the Spirit of God today is saying, I'm calling you to repentance because of the gospel it says Christ died for that sin because he hates that kind of murderous anger and therefore he's calling you to repent. He's calling you today to mourn over your sin, to see it the way he sees it, to admit that perhaps your idolatrous desires that have gripped your heart in the past have shown that you love what it is, whatever it was that you were idolatrously loving at that moment is more so than your love for Christ. And you confess your murderous thoughts and desires and actions to God. And I would call you today that if there is true repentance in your heart, not only will you turn to God and acknowledge that to Him humbly, but I would suggest to you if there's true repentance, that repentance will show the fruit of repentance which is to approach that other person, whoever it is you've spoken these things, whoever it is you've texted them, whoever you have sent them, some Instagram or whatever it is, that you will humbly admit to that person that you have a deep regret over what you said, that you've asked God to forgive you, and now you need to ask that other person to forgive you and admit that what you did was wrong. Those are some of the hardest words ever to utter. That you'll, come and that you'll encounter. And that's when Christ's power can be your strength. Because the gospel calls us to confess our sins not only to God, but it frees us with the freedom to be able to confess my sins to other people because I have a person who's died for me, a high priest who have paid for my sin. Therefore, I know that I can find forgiveness with God and therefore I seek to be forgiven with other people. Why? Because I don't have to walk as if I have no sin. I humbly admit my sin because Christ has forgiven me, therefore I want him to show that grace through my life into your life. The gospel frees us from the fear of man and liberates us to be agents of reconciliation. Some of you may be saying to yourself, 
I can't ever see myself saying those words to someone. My friend, may I say to you, the power of the gospel will meet you at that point in a stronger dynamic than you'll ever see, perhaps ever seen in your life up to now, if you'll take that step. Truly, humbly repent and seek that other person seeking God and know the power of the gospel to forgive and to reconcile. Well, I won't won't focus just on what we should stop or take off or put off, but let's uh, move to the more positive side of things here where Paul deals with, I think, another side of this coin, as it were. We're to put on mutual edification. Mutual edification. Rather than just assuming a role of being carnivorous, that's where we devour and uh, chew on someone else in a vicious, destroying manner. But the scriptures call us to be builders, to build, to be contractors, to be people who are seeing things go from less, um, con- uh, less um, developed to things more developed and stronger buildings, as it were, building things up, not just taking them apart. Turn with me to Romans chapter 14, and we'll start off with just the first of two of these examples. Gospel transformation, by the way, always has this combination of put off and put on. We stop doing certain things because the gospel calls us to say, don't live in such a way that offends God for, which, for to do those things that he died so that we would be set free from that. But we don't just want to stop doing things. Christianity is not list, a, a list of stop doing this, this, and this, and this, and that's it. No, Christianity is stop doing this so that you can, so that you can begin to Seek out and develop and go and move in a new direction. Live in a new way. Put on new ways of living and responding. So twice Paul is going to call on believers to edify each other. Look at Romans 14, verse 19, page 1353. Here we read, Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, I don't have time to go into the larger context completely on this particular verse, and we do need to understand it in that context, so be sure to read 14 and 15 sometime in, a, in one sitting. But the command comes in this controversy where there's swirling around among the different members of this church in Rome, there's this practice that's commonly done by the pagans of that time who are highly uh, polytheistic. They have all sorts of gods, all sorts of temples, all sorts of thoughts about Uh, spiritual matters, and they understood that there were evil spirits that could inhabit someone through the process of eating food that had been joined to some sort of demonic or evil spirit. And so therefore, the pagans thought, well, they should take that food, we need to offer it as a sacrifice to whatever god they're worshiping, and they would do so in their temples, and they would therefore uh, offer that food, supposedly saying, well, that will free us from these kinds of influences for a period of time. And then they would take that meat, what they would say that's left over of the feast that they're enjoying in such gatherings. And they'd say, okay, whatever's left over from this big feast, that meat now is being given to the meat market and so you buy it at, there at the store, at the wall bombs or whatever it is. And so you get this meat and you say, okay, it's a bargain price, but it's been involved in this kind of ritual. And for a new believer who's come out of that kind of belief and practice, they're thinking, oh my God, I would never touch that meat. I know where that meat's been. I know what's going on with this. People who have been a part of preparing at one time 
It's associated with this idea of being sacrificed to an idol. Other people said, no, we know clearly that there is no demonic spirit within these meats. There's nothing has to do with that at all. And therefore, we know that's not how we are spiritually impacted by this kind of food. And they said, there's freedom to eat this stuff. It's bargain basement price. The, the, they got the, the price of this beef has gone way down. You should eat it and enjoy it. And here in this situation, there's a lot of tension developing between these two groups. And Paul says what? Don't use your freedom in such a way to cause your brother to be knocked down, but rather edify him, build him up, help him understand the gospel, help him understand who we are in Christ, help him understand that the real work of God in Christ was to defeat the, the agents of evil. And therefore, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to help each other become stronger in our faith, not just weaker. I wish I could take more time to talk about that, but I want to work at one other verse here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'd like to read that as well. 1 Thessalonians 5, it's a typo in your bulletin, which is my goof. Uh, it's not 1 Timothy, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here's the second reciprocal command about edifying other believers. Against the, con against the backdrop of people who are confused about the second coming of Christ, who think that somehow they've missed it, somehow Christ has already come, Paul writes, verse 8, chapter 5, Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Christ. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as in fact you are doing. So one aspect of spiritual alertness one aspect of being living a life that is under the control of the Spirit of God is to resist the self-indulgent ways of the world and to live for Christ, live for the benefit of building up your brothers and sisters for Christ, in Christ. They are to therefore edify each other, contribute to either the growth of other believers. Clearly what Paul is saying here is we are not to be a part of some wrecking crews that go around and try to tear down other believers. But no, we're to serve as contractors who are edifying, who are building other believers up as members of the family of God. There is a battle going on, it's true, but the enemy is not our fellow believers. <laughs> the enemy is Satan and the forces of darkness. So that raises the question then, and here I'd like to talk in a practical sense, what does it mean then to build somebody else up, to edify them? What are we talking about? Well, the word literally means to build like you're building a building, like a construction of a structure somehow. And in the metaphorical sense, it refers to the process by which we develop Christ-like character as a Christian, I'm a person in my own behavior and in my own response and how I'm responding to what goes on around me in Ephesians 5, 23. And I'm also used by God in verbal instruction to disciple other people around me so that they too will grow in becoming more like Christ and understanding who Christ is in the gospel. Now, there are many examples of this kind of process going on. Again, I'll point you to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Paul and Timothy, who are under attack, 
They have been accused of all sorts of ill motives. They've been accused of not really caring about the people that they're trying to minister to there in the church in Corinth. They're accused of, of having um, abandoned them and they don't really care about them. That's why I haven't come back. And so Paul steps back and says this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. You've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your own upbuilding beloved. He says, what we've been saying, what we've been teaching is to build you up in your faith. We've been trying to show you the scriptures. We've been trying to point Christ to you. We've been trying to help you understand who you are in Christ and what it is to live for Christ. And therefore, our real motive has been to try to lift you up and build you up in your faith. Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we read, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. What's the implication here? Well, the implication is that we obviously know that all the members of the church are not fully mature. All of us are in need of further growth. All of us are in need of further development. And therefore... Instead of avoiding, instead of trying to uh, somehow think that we are, we should acknowledge the fact that we're all in the process of being constructed. We're all in the process of being further built up in our faith. And so therefore, we are encouraged to teach, to instruct, to exhort each other, to serve as tools in the hands of the Holy Spirit to bring about spiritual growth and development in our brothers and sisters in Christ. You say, well, wait a minute, who am I? to say anything to another person who's been in the faith a lot longer. I'm just new at this. I don't really know as much as they know. God certainly cannot use me, a weak or immature believer, to do that in some other person's life. And the answer is yes. Every believer has the gospel, the wonderful truth that God redeems and rescues sinners by the giving of himself and the giving of new hearts to us by faith, and therefore, we have hope in knowing that what? That God is not finished with us yet. And every believer can influence another believer with the gospel. And certainly one thing we can do is to pray for each other and pray with each other, which is a powerful way to use our words. Our, our tongue can build someone up as they hear someone praying for you or with you. What a tremendously way of building them up in the faith, reminding them, seeing, ask God, God, will you do this in their life? Will you help and pray scripture over them? It's a powerful way to build each other up and to edify another believer. It doesn't require a seminary education. What it requires is a humble heart, a heart that loves Christ, a heart that cherishes the gospel. Let's remember, sometimes knowing all the answers is not necessarily the solution. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. You can know a lot of theology, but you've got to bring it down and you've got to edify and build each other up in simple, practical ways. A love for Christ will mean we're not going to do those things that contribute to the destruction of other members of the body of Christ. So for some of us, that means we got to ask, Lord, give me wisdom to know what to say when I feel as though someone has begun to maybe step over the line, when the problem is no longer here, but the problem is each other. And I would suggest to you, one is to meditate on Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath. 
You can choose to not respond in kind when someone has thrown at you something that's been a very painful and very difficult thing to have heard. And another helpful text, and I'll leave you with this, and I'll conclude with this, is Ephesians 4.29. If you've got your Bible, would you please open it and underline this verse, and let's think about meditating on this one in terms of how does the gospel bring fruit that will actually bring about this kind of verbal fruit in our hearts and lives. Ephesians 4.29. You've got to read the whole chapter, of course, if you really don't understand it all. But let no unwholesome, the word there is rotten, putrid. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such word as is good for what? Building up, edification, instruction, encouraging words, uplifting words, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Just as we receive grace from Jesus Christ over and over and over again because we've said so many things we regret, we need to ask forgiveness for, so I'm going to ask, Lord, use me as a person who speaks words of grace to other people, building them up in their faith, showing them there's hope for them, there's encouragement for them, because there's a Savior who loves them and lives for them even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the gospel is indeed our hope because Christ is our hope. Because we've seen today, Lord, that all of us stand guilty before you. Even our own words come out of a heart that has become so angry at times, Lord. All of us have said things. We have spoken things, Lord, that we cannot take back. But they've come out of a murderous, angry heart. And Lord, we all desperately need a Savior. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has oftentimes minimized their need for a Savior, they become aware of how their words or they realize their response to somebody who has also spoken those kind of painful words has indicated this kind of wickedness in their own heart. Lord, I pray that you would show them there's a wonderful, gracious Savior whose blood can cleanse them and give them a new heart and give them a new life and give them true forgiveness through Jesus Christ. I pray today, Lord, they would come before this day is over and truly repent and trust and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have been convicted by this kind of words that we've spoken in the past. I pray that you'd bring repentance into our hearts. Lord, for many of us, that's going to be very difficult confessions of sin having to humble ourselves with other people, asking them to forgive us. I pray, Lord, you give us courage to do these things. I pray, Lord, that you would also give us words of grace, words that edify, words that bring appropriate building up of other believers, Lord, that's right for the moment. We cannot do that in our own strength, but Lord, by your strength, would you use us and set our tongues free to be people who Speak in, in, in harmony with the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.